I don't want to sound like NPR. That's their thing. Right. I don't want to sound like, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. I want to sound like myself. How do I sound like myself and tell this story in a journalistic way without sort of putting on that hat of a crime reporter? Podcasting is not radio. If you're a listener, you probably already know that. But if you're a radio reporter looking to launch your first true crime podcast, you may encounter a few surprises along the way. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Jack Moore and Megan Clorty are employees of WTOP, the 24-hour news station in Washington, D.C. I've worked with both of them, Jack at Federal News Radio, now Federal News Network, and Megan as a fellow student in the American University's Master's in Interactive Journalism program. And for any longtime listeners out there, Megan is one of the founding producers of this very podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Jack and Megan. She's back. She's back. <sighs> Hi. Hi, welcome. It's good to be back. Yeah, there are a lot of motions going on. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of subtext about this podcast that we're, I don't know how much is going to come subtext. out. All good subtext. You see, and what what's great for me, because I no longer work for this organization, but I was a big fan of a lot of people in it and a lot of the talk that was going on about podcasts, that people were very interested in doing podcasts. So when Megan reached out to me and said, hey... Jack and I are putting together this podcast called uh, 22 Hours, an American Nightmare. Can we come in and talk about it? And I said, of course we can, because it, it sounds like something really great. So it's a true crime podcast. Uh, what can you tell me about it? Say that three times fast. I can. I always get tripped up on that. Basically, it's, well, the way we tend to start it is the best thing that has been said about this crime was from the prosecutor. And she said, this is a crime that nightmares are made of. Is that what you would say, Jack? I mean, absolutely. It strikes to, I think, the primal fear of, of almost you know, anyone being, being attacked in your home with your family, being held captive, and being unable to protect or save the ones that you love. There was a lot of kind of extraordinary things about this crime. I mean, the family was very wealthy. It happened in a very wealthy part of D.C. But really, it gets to, you know, a family and this horrible thing that happened to them. And then the man who was accused of doing it and then went on trial and was convicted of doing it. And his defense was, it wasn't me, it was my two brothers. And so then now you have another family who's completely shattered by this horrifying crime. That was kind of a revolving motif. And then tying back into the title, An American Nightmare, you know, this theme that we kept returning to over and over again is this idea of the American dream. So on the one hand, you had this family that had seemed to achieve the American dream. They had, you know, a beautiful house. The father was a successful businessman in D.C., owned a construction company. And then you had the perpetrator who was motivated by similar things, wanted this life of luxury, was obsessed with luxury cars, wanted money, wanted a better life, wanted the best life. And that led him to commit the American nightmare of the title. And throughout this entire thing, as we're presenting, you know, the crime and the investigation and the trial and the verdict, everything we learned after the fact, it's Jack and I as local reporters trying to piece together a podcast. And we kind of decided to do this right before the trial started, just because we knew it was going to be such a complex trial. And there were so many details that we and so many questions that we had that we thought the trial might answer. And so we decided also for workflow to record our conversations while I was in the courtroom. If I left and had to file during lunch breaks or whatever, I would call Jack and just fill him in on what had happened that day. But we ended up recording what we were doing. So now we have sort of this audio diary of 
that entire six weeks. And, you know, just our conversations about FOIAing things and finding the transcripts and just reporting in general and how we were able to do this. Yeah, that's that's really great. And one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about is the fact that this is not some, hey, I heard about this cold case or I, I heard about this this case from a few years ago. It was something that you you guys actively covered. And so the storytelling is not just about the crime, which, you know, is certainly interesting for people who are interested in, in, in true crime, but it's actually about the process, you know, the day-to-day process of, you know, going to court, digging out records and talking to people. And I mean, you know, kudos to you coming up with the idea to like record your conversations as you're reporting it, thinking ahead to, you know, this one day is going to make, make something different. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it was just so we didn't forget stuff. (laughs) Yeah, there was kind of, I mean, there was always, when we started, there was an idea like maybe we could do a podcast, but to be honest, it wasn't even really that firmed up. It was just kind of like, it would be nice to have, so let's just record so we don't miss anything. But a lot of it was because Megan, to kind of like describe how we covered the trial, Megan was in the courtroom most of the time and I was back in the newsroom and I would write the web story. We also had a live blog covering the trial And Megan was filing daily, twice daily audio reports. And then when there was a break in the trial, when she would go out to file, that's when she would call me and then kind of fill me in, you know, okay, this witness testified and they said they saw this. And so then I could write the web story. And she also took copious notes and she would take a picture of her notes and then send it to me so I could kind of be clued into what was going on in the courtroom so I could write the web story. And while she was relating all that information, that's what we were recording. After a while, I mean, pretty much from the beginning. We figured that we weren't going to use the majority of it. So it's not like you were calling being like, okay, are you ready? Three, two. (laughs) I mean, it was like, hey, I have two minutes. I grabbed a turkey sandwich and and it's raining now. So I'm going to file really quickly. These are the three things. Boom, boom, boom. And a lot of it was just like my hair was on fire. I had no time to tell him anything. So it was about relaying the information. But there were some days that now that we have those audio files and we look back on them or, we, or listen back to them, it's striking to hear the emotion in them, to hear, you know, the intangibles that you maybe wouldn't have reported six months later. That's pretty fascinating because I know what you guys do every day where you go out and you cover something and you grab some from sound, you interview, interview people and you create a report and then you move on to the next thing. But with these longer stories, you sort of open up opportunities for you to do different different types of things. Yeah. You know, maybe not a podcast. Maybe you do a special where you, you pull in audio and you do something maybe special for the web as well. Let's talk about, okay, we're going to do a podcast. At what point did that, you know, that reality sort of present itself? It was right before the trial, and the trial started in September of 2018, which is sort of interesting because the crime happened three years earlier more than three years earlier. So we'd been waiting on a lot of detail. I mean, we'd kind of been waiting for this thing to start and we were talking about how are we going to cover this just off of Jack's point. We were like, well, I guess we could do a podcast, but we kind of just threw it up in the air and started recording. In my mind, it was more important that we cover the trial well. The podcast was was secondary. I would say, you know, after the, the verdict came in, guilty verdict came in, and we started reaching out to some of the people who had testified and just picking apart how we'd even approach this thing, I feel like that started in maybe November. Mm-hmm. Now it's June. So we've been working in earnest on it every single day since I would say like February or March. When did the trial end? The end of October. Okay. So October 2018. 18, yeah. So there, for me, there was a period afterward. We, we reached out to some jurors, some witnesses. The holidays happened around that time. So a lot of things kind of dried up. So around the first of the year, we kind of were reexamining. For me, it was a question of, can we even do this? You know, because to be honest, we had trouble contacting some witnesses. We had trouble 
once we did contact them, people who didn't want to participate, I mean, this was such a horrible crime. And now that there had been a verdict, you know, some people wanted to forget this. They wanted to move on with their lives. For me, there was a question of like, well, how are we even going to do this? There was the other big thing of, you know, trying to retell a trial and in D.C. Superior Court where this took place, there's no audio recording. There's no video recording. It's not like, you know, some really highly televised trials. I mean, even though it was certainly as dramatic as that. For, yeah, there was no like audio or video to right, go to. So we're like, how us. can we do this? So there was for me, there was a period of I don't even know if we can. Because you can't you can't just play your audio and you've got to tell a story, but you've got to tell an efficient story. An audio story, you've got to tell something that's, that people are going to want to listen to that has mm-hmm. that tickles their ear in some way. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you've got to get different voices in there. You've got to find people to interview. I had a chance to listen to the first episode. You have a lot of the um, the police audio. Was that e- easy to get? The good thing is the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office is very transparent. So anything that was introduced as evidence during the trial, it was fairly easy to get a hold of through them. The public defender service is a different story. Basically, their only priority is to their client. So they never talk to journalists. I mean, ever. There were some pieces of evidence that were introduced in their case, which you would think they would want to help a journalist out because it's presenting their side of the story. They basically, in so many words, told us we would have to sue them. I mean, how how many episodes have you produced so far? Four. Four. Yeah, and within a projected 10. 10. Complicating the issue is the case is being appealed. So anybody who could talk to us, such as the prosecutor or a defender, if we, you know, really, really begged and pleaded, can't because it's being appealed. It's interesting. Even D.C. Fire used that as a reason why they couldn't talk to us afterwards, because we would have loved to talk to the firefighters who were in the house. We have their calls, just like the people who, who testified. We have their words. We have their testimony. But Talking to them, getting their voices, getting their perspective afterwards, there's value in that. So how much how much audio are we talking about that you had before you sat down and started to, okay, we need to go through this and, and figure out what we can use? We had, I think, clips, small clips, a couple voicemails from the victims and from Darren Went, who was convicted in the crime. We had the 911 call. We had our audio diary from me calling Jack, but that's pretty much it. <laughs> We had to knock on doors and call people, and Jack did a majority of that work. I was still day-to-day reporting, and he kind of was given a little more leeway to sort of start getting things off the ground. It's funny because it's come together in a very sporadic way. It seems like it's just, like, dry. Nobody's calling you back. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? And then all of a sudden you'll have, like, five things drop, and you're like, oh, gosh, we have to rewrite that whole section. <laughs> yeah, so there's people at, who at the final episode of Serial who were still producing it the uh, the week of the last episode. Well, uh, and unlike Serial, we or actually I shouldn't pick on Serial because I don't know, but unlike a lot of the bigger podcasts, we only have two people. It's not a 25-man operation here, you know? So it's interesting to sort of approach a project of this scale, make it as good as we want to make it, and be so shoestring. And one of the things that you pitch this interview to me that I wanted to sort of talk about is, you know, having worked here and sort of, it's very radio focused, we have to, and very web focused, we need to get the content up there. Mm-hmm. You know, producing a podcast takes time and resources. I mean, how are you able to pitch that? I mean, you were telling me before that, you know, you're focused pretty much on this. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it goes to the credit of Julia Ziegler, who is our digital news director and really sees the value in kind of exploring this let's put giant air quotes around new (laughs) medium. But I mean, it it is something I think that it seems to me like traditional newsrooms are 
fearful of getting involved in the podcast space because they don't know about monetizing it. It is sort of the wild, wild west. Can you curse on them? What are they regulated by? I mean, it's kind of a little bit of a, do we want to stick our toe in that water? And she thinks this story rocks. I mean, not just the fact that it's compelling, it's complex, it's interesting, but just the amount of detail that we have from sitting in that courtroom. It's worth retelling. It's worth going through. And especially in a news cycle when people may know about what happened to this family and to Vera Figueroa, who was also killed along with the Savopolises. But they may not have had the chance to follow the trial or they may not have, have heard, you know, the details of what happened. Or to me, in my mind, there's a journalistic there's value a story in doing to, it. There's a yeah. story to tell. Yeah. And, and you're telling there's the victim's story. It's almost like writing a book. I mean, that's how much detail we're getting in and kind of approaching telling this story from a new angle, you know, because unlike some podcasts, you know, we don't have like some new piece of evidence, like some alibi witness that's going to completely change, you know, the outcome. So it is a retelling, but there's new insight because we're using the the trial as a jumping off point. But it, it really is like a book in the way we're approaching telling the story. It was like it's like a, you know, listening to it. On the one hand, I hear very much the way T.O.P. sort of tells stories. But then on the other way, other hand, I kind of hear uh, sort of a traditional crime narrative that you're that you're weaving in here with other other elements. And T.O.P. has done other podcasts. You know, mm-hmm. we've had Neil Loganstein on the podcast a couple of times talking about the, the crime podcast that he did. Anyway, I don't know where this, this point is. I'm going with this. But the thing I did want to point out is something that you kind of sort of glossed over is this is a – for lack of a better word, a money-making operation. This is, um, you know, commercial. The number one money-making right, operation right. This in is, radio. This, this is commercial <laughs> broadcast radio. Yeah. So a lot of people, when they think, well, what? you're listening to the two of you, they say, oh, well, NPR is doing this left and right. There are people on NPR who, who can't help but just, like, create great podcasts. Mm-hmm. But this is a very different situation. You're in a, a newsroom that's that's very focused on, you know, getting ratings and in, in making money. Not that NPR isn't concerned about making money in their own way. But is that presenting any any challenges to you, do you think? Well, two things. First of all, I think that our ownership, WTOP is owned by Hubbard Radio. They're doubling down on this. They're going all in. I mean, we're doing interviews across the country with the different podcasts that are on Podcast One, which is also a partner. I mean, I think at some point it was like, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this, you know, and we really went for it in time and in, in marketing and cross promotion and what have you. What was interesting in our process, and at least for me, which was way different from the 40-second stories I would do with a voice like this and lower my voice really deeply, is Megan Clord. you can't talk like that for, for 30 minutes. I mean, you you can't. Here's, and here's, it's, here's not, it's also thing. not a podcast. People don't want to hear you talk no, like that. No, nor do I want to talk like that. For, but I mean, it's interesting in how different you can't apply radio medium to podcast. And I know that sounds like, duh, but- it's audio. It should be relatively simple, and it's not at all. And I had to find a completely different voice. It took me 10 takes to find it, which is like, for me, is crazy because I'm like mid-career. I've been voicing since I feel like I was like 10 years old. And it's just as like, well, that's not going to work. Well, that's not going to work. I don't want to sound like NPR. That's their thing. Right. I don't want to sound like whatever, fill in the blank. I want to sound like myself. How do I sound like myself and tell this story in a journalistic way without sort of putting on that hat of a crime reporter? And in the same vein, Jack, who is used to writing an AP style, and I mean, I'll let you speak to it, but he then has to become sort of this, it's like an author. I mean, it's just writing a completely different way and then melding our two styles where 
almost like a screenplay and making it a little bit more conversational. So he would write something and then it would come to me and I'm taking out like phrases that are too formal because I just wouldn't say them and replacing them with something more conversational. So the whole process has been very, it's helped me sort of rebuild, honestly, how I approach storytelling. And you can hear it. You certainly can hear it in the, in the first episode. You're scripting the, the entire episode. These episodes, just so everybody has an idea, for the most part, they're sound heavy, whether it's us out on location or us interviewing someone. We put as much natural sound in as we can, as much evidentiary sound in as we can. It's trying to move fast. It's not us just chatting. Think of sort of more like a Dateline story. Yeah, I I would say it's more like that as opposed to like a a typical NPR story. Sometimes NPR stories, and and I know the value of sort of dramatically pausing and waiting for things to develop and and bringing in music and everything to sort of enhance your storytelling. But, I mean, to tell a crime story the way that you are, I think think it's a little different. I like the way it sounds. So you're going to be launching on June 10th? You're launching on June 10th. People now can, until June 10th, they can they can sign up for it on Podcast One or they can sign it up for Apple Podcasts or wherever people can get uh, their podcasts. And uh, they can get the preview episode. And then June 10th, boom, that, that first episode comes yeah. out. Which, by the way, is a totally different new thing for me because I'm used to like the immediate breaking thing. And it's like, no, this could be, you know, you can get episode one. Obviously, we want you to subscribe as soon as possible, but you could get it a year from now. I mean, the right. whole idea is this thing lives on. So, Megan, people are still listening to your podcast no. with me. I get emails from people who are listening to stuff two or three years past. So, It changes the way you write something, right? It's not necessarily in the immediate. That's all it's, I'm saying. It's a whole different deal. Yeah. This is not radio. It's sound. You said before, you know, that, yeah, I had to rethink it. Is, you know, it should be the same, but it's not the same. Yeah. I've had so many conversations with radio people perhaps maybe in a certain corporation, who were saying to me, says, well, no, we should be able to get this. This should be easy. Mm -hmm. No, but it's a whole different thing. Mm -hmm. It's a whole different audience, a whole different approach. People are going to come to you when they want to listen to it. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's important that what you give them is well-produced and interesting. Yeah. I think this is something that's interesting. Is there any particular podcast that inspires you? When we first started, Julie Ziegler, the um, digital news Director. Middle News Director. <laughs> Your boss. Yeah. Who, who, who is a big champion for this project. You know, when we were kind of having, when I was having that kind of lost in the wilderness moment about, I don't know if we can do this. You know, she was our biggest cheerleader. And she gave us a couple suggestions of podcasts because she's really into a true crime podcasts. A couple of podcasts to listen to. One of them that I really was impressed by and, and felt like well, if we can even do, you know, like one tenth of this, you know, that will be my goal was In the Dark, American Public Media. So I listened to a few episodes of that, but I didn't want to listen to too many because I didn't want to be too influenced. You don't want to have their voice. Right. And I remember I listened to Serial, you know, back when everyone else in the entire world did in a couple years ago. Those were really my two main points of reference. I didn't want to become too too familiar with the tropes or the styles because I didn't want to fall into them. You know, I wanted to kind of be being able to put our own stamp on it. So... Listening to In the Dark especially was a good um, template for, okay, here's how we could tell, you know, this part of the story. If we don't have sound and we have to narrate it, here's how we could, you know, so that was good to kind of get me out of this rut of, I don't know how to even do this, you know? Yeah, and I'm glad that you said that podcast. We've been lucky to have a couple of the producers on our podcast, and we're big fans of it because they're journalists. Mm -hmm. They're using podcasting as as a journalistic platform to tell these sort of longer, more complex stories. And so, again, this is why I'm really 
psyched about being here and talking to the two of you because I think this is a this is a bold move forward certainly for this company, but I think it's also for for both of you as storytellers. So I'm excited to see where this goes. So did you really think you were going to come back to a podcast one day? <laughs> of course I did. No, no but it's it's funny because I was just thinking during Jack's answer of what podcast he listens to. I sort of listen to more like I listen to political podcasts. I listen to like the morning kind of news roundup podcast, but I've never. I didn't listen to true crime, probably because my day is true crime, so I don't really like to go home and then listen to true crime. So I listen to sort of more of the chatty ones, you know, yeah, conversational yeah. ones. And this is very, very different than that. And I think that may have been sort of the blessing and the curse, is I didn't really have in my mind an idea of how to do this in the way I wanted to, if that makes sense. Like, I just didn't know how to structure it, what kind of voice to use, how serious to be. I mean, we are talking about four people who were brutally killed. So it's like, well, are we making an entertainment out of that? No. Am I going to make a joke to Jack as we're ad-libbing in the middle of, you know, episode five? I don't know. I mean, like, there was a gray area for me on how to approach some of these. Kind of how to take it on in a way that I, I wanted it to be respectful, factual, and really convey, I mean, there was sometimes there was some lightheartedness in the tr- in the courtroom just because we're all human beings and that ends up happening. Somebody misspeaks or trips over themselves or something and it's funny, but you want to convey as much as you can the real life of it. And I had to get comfortable with sharing a little bit of my experience in this, which I'm not used to doing as a reporter. Usually it doesn't matter how I feel or what my experience was. And, and that became sort of a part of this, is, is us going through it and reporting and the challenges and tribulations we found. Let's talk about the journalistic aspect of it then. Is it changed the way you think about journalism and, and, and journalistic storytelling at all? I feel like it changes your rush to report something. I mean, obviously, we're all smart enough at this point to know that you, you better have it right before you have it first. But there was a lot of in this trial that was revealed that, you know, the facts remained the same, but the context that was provided later really made you rethink how you wanted to approach it. I mean, Jack, I think said this earlier, in the early days, we didn't have much information. So we reported what we could. And the majority of that, if not all of that was accurate based on what we knew from police, (laughs) you know, breaking news every once in a while, you can say something wrong. But it ended up being that while those facts were still the same, for example, Darren Wint was arrested with five people. Initially, anybody is going to think, I think, or at least my opinion is, how could you be arrested with five people? You're an accused quadruple murderer. None of those people have anything to do with it. Of course they do. Somebody knows something. You just kind of jump to conclusions. And that was the police theory of the case was this required more than one person to be involved. And right. So then when he's arrested so kind of you with, set you up, yeah, to, with to multiple think. people, we're thinking, well, there had to have been a group of, you know, Or maybe, you know, are they investigating any of those people? And your mind just sort of wanders. And obviously you're not reporting your speculation, but he's arrested with five people. Later we learn none of those five people had anything to do with it. And so, yeah, he was arrested with five people, but it didn't end up being the story that we kind of thought it was. So I guess I guess my long answer to your short question is it makes you rethink how quickly you jump to conclusions about things and how any kind of. Of those those thoughts in your head get into your reporting if they leak in I don't know for the yeah. longest time I thought more than one person had done this have, have you done a have you had a lot of experience I know you've Jack you've done sort of long term online projects where you've covered something for several months and posted something have you had you know worked on a project for a period of months God no yeah other than in college I think that that says a lot about it because 
if you're, you know, you're doing your two minute audio thing, you know, Monday and then another one on Tuesday and you get something a little wrong, you can switch back on the next day and sort of nuance it and say, okay, well, this is the direction things are going. This is what we know now. Yeah, and I don't necessarily mean reporting it wrong. I just mean like you're sort of thinking about it in a way like I think as human beings, we sort of want a narrative. We want to understand what's happening. And so even if you're not reporting, you're like, okay, well, I wonder if that guy's going to get, you know, when you're looking up court records for that person and seeing if there's any background or anything. And that was just the totally wrong way to go. And you realize as a reporter, yes, you're digging, 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 but necessarily are you digging in the right direction? Yeah. I mean, no, I've never worked on anything this long, Michael, and it has been, I mean. It's busting your balls. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, you're a true reporter. I'm loud. I like to talk a lot. I go out all the time and meet people. I get energy from people. So to be in a booth every day cutting this thing, I mean, it's a labor of love. It really is. This is good for you. This is good for you, I think. <laughs> I feel like I'm like in a therapy session. No, no. It, it, this it, it, is this, good for you. Is good you're going to have a lot of personal you growth. Know, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of podcasters, people who want to do podcasting, journalists who want to do podcasting. You know, Here you are, two people doing a podcast by yourselves. You don't have a whole huge staff behind you. You know, What would you tell people who, you know, I have an idea for a podcast. I'd turn what, back what? if I were you. No. <laughs> no. Run in the other no, direction. No, but make sure that it's something that... Because to be completely honest, if it were totally up to me, I don't know. I probably would have quit back in January. I probably would have given up. You know, there was a lot of points where I felt like I can't do this or I don't know how to do this. So having other dedicated people who believed in the project. So if you believe in it, then that's that will be your push. If you don't, you have to have people who, who can see what it will end up being and can believe in it. And being able to think long term, because like, like Megan said, we have been working on this, you know, like this is going to be a thing since February. How many drafts of the first episode do we go through and how many, you know, iterations of it? And it's like, you know, rolling. Who was Sisyphus? Am I saying that yeah. right? Who yeah. rolled the pebble up the hill or the rock up the hill? It was, it was bigger than that. Uh, <laughs> he put it in you his know, pocket well, and he us, up it, the hill. Sometimes it felt like a pebble. Yeah. I, I also think it's helpful to have different, maybe not personalities, but different people taking different approaches towards it. So, for example, Jack is very detail-oriented. I'm very big picture I'm sure you haven't gotten that so far in our personalities. Yeah, I think it helps when I can turn to him and be like, wait, wasn't that at 249? And he'll be like, no, it was at 247. Like, just <laughs> flat out like, oh, no, this this was the piece of evidence. And it's on page 43. And you're like, how how do you remember that? But then I'll I'll kind of sort of like, you know, ice the cake, if you will, and, and make it all string together and do the transitions and, and sort of smooth it over. And I think that it does help. And then Julia's very pragmatic and, and she sees sort of how we could not sell it, but how we can appeal it to different audiences. And we wrote two press releases for this thing, which is kind of crazy that you're writing a press release about journalism or about a journalistic project. But one of them was about the journalism of it. You know, it was about like how two people could put this thing together in a relatively small newsroom and how, I don't know, just how we accomplished this thing. But I think as far as <laughs> advice, be prepared for there to be multiple drafts and take your time with it. Because I think I was so used to this like quick flow, rush, rush, rush to get things on the air. Then the first couple episodes, I was super frustrated because I would, you know, we'd lay something down. It'd be done in my mind. And then someone would be like, that just was an upcut right there. Or we actually have to change this phrase. And you'd have to revoice like 20 minutes of it for it would sound clean. And so I'm not saying that to complain. I'm just saying like, it's not really done. It's like never really done. Yeah. I mean, we went back and edited one today and I'm supposed to be on five. It's there's little tweaks constantly. Let me pull together a couple of pieces of things that you've said in this. 
is going to be 10 episodes. You're launching it June 10th. It's weekly? Yes. Mondays. Um, you have four episodes done. Hmm. We have multiple, six. yeah, six written. Okay. But it is funny. I mean, it takes him a very long time. Jack, essentially, the, you know, the work is divvied up that Jack writes it, writes the episode. It comes to me. I, like, broadcastify it <laughs> without the trademark infringement. Right. <laughs> then it goes to, to Julia, who just kind of makes, honestly reads it to make sure it makes sense. I mean, the person who's not in it, in it, and right. so close to it that, you know, wait, you know, who's Paul or whatever? Like, <laughs> it's like, you don't, you're not getting any surprises. And then it goes back to Jack for those changes. It comes back to me. And then I voice it. And then we listen to the audio version of that. And I lay down a very rough cut, listen to the audio version, and then that gets changed up. So, And even in the voicing of it, like, I mean, there's always edits to be made on the on the draft. But then when you actually go to, like, speak into the microphone, I mean, they think that's, like, the true test of, like, does this make how we have written? Does this even make sense? Like, would would I even say this? You know, and then that then it kind of completely changes. Mm-hmm. The paper draft is like truly a draft, and we've gone some episodes by the time they're done resemble that first draft, and some of them look very different. We were in, we were putting together one episode, and we call it the Franken episode. <laughs> Because it literally was like taken apart and put back together four times, I think. As in Frankenstein, not Al Frankenstein. Oh. That's correct. <laughs> yeah, who I, as in Frankenstein. I've heard it has a pretty popular podcast now. Yeah, um, yeah. we didn't insert that in there. Okay. Yeah, so it kind of, it does in the process of putting it all together, it can kind of take on a, a new life of its own. Mm-hmm. And I think that doing that, you know, kind of blowing it up and starting over or starting from halfway through and redoing it made it better. Yeah. I'm really excited for you guys. I think this is going to be a big thing. I really do. I hope so. I like, well, (laughs) yeah, you you put the effort in. No, you put the effort in. You identify the story. You're figuring out how to, how to tell it. You're putting the hours in, you're getting feedback on it. You're committed to it. You're thinking about Mm -hmm. how we're going to promote it. You're reaching out to your friends to get, get on your podcast and, and whatnot. This is going to be a big thing. And like I said, you know, 22 hours in American nightmare, it's going to be on, Pretty much wherever you can get your or podcast, but certainly Podcast One and Apple Podcasts starting on the 10th. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, it's been a few weeks since I posted a survey to collect information about what programs, apps, and tools you're using to make good journalism. The response has been tepid. But the survey is not going away anytime soon. We want to hear from you about what tools you're using to do your job. And here's a reminder. If you fill out the survey, we'll send you one of our It's All Journalism coffee mugs. Be the envy of your newsroom. So go to itsalljournalism.com, follow the link, and fill out the survey. For those few who have already filled out the survey, thank you. You'll be hearing from me soon about your coffee mugs. For the rest of you, get cracking. We put a lot of hard work into creating this podcast for you every week. We ask so little in return. If you've enjoyed our podcast, do us a favor. Fill out the survey, and we'll give you a mug. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.